You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Tracy Foreman, who is sweet enough and kind enough to do a Zoom call with Leaders and Legends all the way from England. She taught history at the University of Hull, which is located on the eastern side of Britain by the River Humber. She earned her PhD in 1997. She is now the chief executive of the, I can't read my own writing, hold on a second, Heritage Education Trust, apologies, a charity that encourages children to learn and visit historic properties. And she is the joint chief curator for historic royal palaces. This charity manages the Hampton Court Palace, which I have not been to, Kensington Palace, which I've not been to, which is why I have to go back this year, the Tower of London, and other famous landmarks. Dr. Borman even got married at the Tower of London. Jealous does not even begin to describe it. Must have been absolutely gorgeous. Dr. Borman is a best-selling and world-renowned author. Her books include... The Story of the Tower of London, Witches, A Tale of Sorcery, Scandal, and Seduction, and her new book, which we're going to discuss in detail today, Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy. Kirkus Reviews called Crown and Scepter, quote, a superb synthesis of historical analysis, politics, and top-notch royal gossip, close quote. We will put a link to Dr. Borman's website when we post this podcast interview. Thank you, Tracy, for coming on the podcast. Oh, Robert, it's a huge, huge pleasure. And thank you for that lovely introduction. I am going to say straight away, you need to come to Hampton Court. You know, even if I have to drag you there when you're next uh, in London, (laughs) because, you know, if you like your Tudor history, I would say there's nowhere better. Well, we'll we'll exchange emails, and I'm happy to coordinate my schedule. That that and Kensington are two places I haven't been. I, I want to go to uh, Hever Castle because I follow them oh, on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, my family, the the Vane family, is relatively prominent in the especially the Stuart era, mm. and they have a castle, and I need to go see that one as well. They yeah. my ancestors immigrated over; they were Jacobites, so they 
fled. Ah, you were the wrong side of the of the crown at that stage. But Vane, yeah, that was a very powerful and prominent family. So I'm, I'm envious. <laughs> well, as Catholics, we thought we were on the right side. It's just we kept getting executed for it. And that's, you know, uh, a little tough to take. Yeah, it's a bit careless. It's a bit- <laughs> <laughs> Since we're so close to the Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, uh, what were your impressions of the celebration and and some mm-hmm. thoughts on her 70 year reign. I thought the the celebrations were wonderful. They were quite extraordinary. Um, the weather was very typical of uh, of that uh, for the Queen's coronation in 1953. Very cold and wet, uh, but it perked up a bit for the pageant, which was the kind of culmination of those festivities. And I was very lucky enough to be part of the. Um, the BBC's commentary team for that final event. So I was stationed there with a bird's eye view of Buckingham Palace and right next to the Royal Box. It, it was so surreal. I was looking across to my right and there was, you know, Prince Charles and, and Prince William and Catherine. And um, yeah, it felt amazing. And I think there was such excitement and respect when the Queen appeared on the balcony against expectations because she is obviously, you know, 96. She, she's incredible age. And, um, and you know, she's she is frail, but the fact she made that effort, I thought, was was wonderful. But what a historic moment. You know, having written about a thousand years of royal history, we've never had a platinum jubilee before when 70 years on the throne celebrated by a monarch. I would say, you know, we're probably never going to have one again. Well, certainly not in our lifetime. So oh, it was such right. a historic moment. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought, yeah, everybody seemed to get into the spirit of it, whether you're a monarchist or a Republican. You know, there were lots of street parties. People loved the fact they had a holiday. Uh, and I thought it was great. There have been periods where the support for the British monarchy has waxed and waned within mm-hmm. um, Britain itself. Yeah. Where would you put that now? More kind of supportive or yeah. more it's like it's an anachronism. It costs too much money. They're spoiled rotten. Yeah. What are we going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I th- there was a recent poll taken, opinion poll, um, and it came out that 60% of people in Britain still are strongly in favor of the monarchy. So that's actually a bit lower than it has been uh, in previous decades of the Queen's reign, when it's much nearer 80%. Um, and I think even hardened Republicans really like and respect the Queen, because uh, regardless of how you feel about the Crown and the whole institution and what it costs, the Queen has done her duty unflinchingly. She's worked so hard for those 70 years. But I think where there's greater uncertainty around uh, among people at the moment in Britain is what happens after the Queen. And that's when the opinion polls start to show much greater hesitation. Um, people are not so sure whether the monarchy will still survive um, in 50, even 20 years' time, because it's so synonymous with Elizabeth II herself. And, you know, I think Charles has got, you know, an awfully uh, big job really ahead of him and, and big shoes to fill. Um, you so say that he's I, rehabbed himself, forgive me, that he's rehabbed himself pretty well after the Diana years. Yeah. I, th- I think there's been a very careful rehabilitation um, by the, the Prince of Wales's press office and that of uh, Camilla, um, the Duchess of Cornwall, um, uh, because there was huge hostility towards them both in the wake of Diana's death. 
Um, can you believe that's going to be 25 years ago this this August, by the way? It's no, just, and when you go yeah. through the tunnel, as I know you have, I'm sure you have in yeah. Paris, and the yeah. cabbie, you know, invariably points it out to you. You just yeah, you just shake your head like, of all places, this is where she dies? It's I so, it's, I can't think of the way. Unfair doesn't quite cover it. Unfathomable, maybe. It's just yes. such a tragedy, but he has. Yeah. And do you think that, that Charles's image has been burnished uh, improved by, and we're going to move on because I don't want to turn this into, uh, you know, um, an episode of BBC gossip, but <laughs> based on how Prince Andrew has acted, do you think in relative terms, that just makes Charles look more serious? Yeah, I think Charles is, has not really put a foot wrong in recent times. And I think the Queen has been delegating more and more authority and duties to him. And that is likely to continue, I would say. And I think people are now taking him much more seriously because Charles, to be fair to him, has been championing the environment as as a cause of major concern for many years. And and certainly people here in Britain used to laugh at that and the fact, oh, he talks to his plants and it's all rather silly. Um, (laughs) But actually now we're listening. And I think um, people really respect that role that he's playing. And also his son, William, um, they're both great advocates for environmental causes. And I think therein lies potential for the future of the monarchy as advocates of good causes. People listen when a member of the royal family speaks and talks about a cause. So I think that's a really valuable role they can and play. I would, I would assume they also have tremendous fundraising powers. Yes. You know, do oh. a dinner and I'll show up and your ticket prices yeah. quadruple, quintuple. Exactly. You are so right, because um, actually the beginning of what was known as a kind of philanthropic monarchy was it way back in the 18th century with, with the endless succession of King George's. And that's when the monarchy first started putting its weight behind charitable causes. And today that is one of the most powerful roles of the monarchy. The queen is patron of more than 400 charities. And the directors of those charities always say what a massive difference it makes if you have a royal patron to your income. And I think it was Prince Philip, um, the queen's late husband, who said, we only need worry when the begging letters stop arriving at Buckingham Palace. So I do do think charitable work is going to be part of the monarchy long into the future. Last question on this particular topic, since you just brought him up, is it a bit surreal that he's gone? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this was the the longest serving consort in British royal history, the longest marriage by far. Um, And and it it, it is, it does feel very different. And I think um, we've noticed a a real difference in the Queen herself since uh, Philip's death. She suddenly there's a vulnerability that wasn't there before. And I think we saw it in that that really poignant photograph of her sitting in St. George's mm. Chapel, you know, with her face mask on and she was all alone. It looked like she was all alone because, of course, there were hardly any, any mourners allowed in. Um, and there has been a new sense of fragility, I think, uh, since uh, Philip's death, because he was, as she said herself, and it's been quoted many times, her strength and stay. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very, very sad. He was... He was controversial. He was outspoken, uh, but he did his duty just like the Queen. Have you had a chance to interview, talk, have a decent kind of, you know, beyond perfunctory conversation with any members of the senior royals, given your job and your research? Oh, I wish. I wish. You'd think, given my job, but in fact, historic royal palaces, we look after the unoccupied royal palaces. 
So um, the exception being Kensington, because obviously royals still live at Kensington, but there's also, it's a palace of two halves. We look after the visitor attraction side of Kensington, which isn't lived in. So actually, I don't have any more to do with the royal family than pretty much anybody else. I might see them at openings of things, Mm -hmm. but in-depth conversations, I'd love to say yes, but the, the truth is no. Now, am I getting this right? Prince Edward, the youngest child of the queen, he is the Earl of Wessex. Mm-hmm. Is that right? right? Yeah. Didn't he kind of take a role in in bringing some histories forward? Like he focused on that a little bit. I read that yeah. years ago that that's kind of one of the something he's carved out for himself. Yeah, because Wessex, I mean, that that is steeped in royal history when uh, before England was a united kingdom and it was in Anglo-Saxon t- times termed a, a heptarchy. So mm-hmm. seven separate kingdoms and Wessex was, you know, it, it emerged as the strongest of those. So, yeah, that was kind of, you know, reviving, uh, I guess, that that rather nice royal tradition because people were like, what the hell's Wessex and where the hell's Wessex? That doesn't exist today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I thought that was quite nice, actually, just because, you know, the royal, at the heart of the royal family is tradition. And what really struck me in writing Crown and Scepter was not just how much has changed in the sort of 11 or so centuries of the crown's existence, but the continuity. Like the, the ceremony followed for Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953 was pretty much a carbon copy of King Edbert. Egbert's in nine the 900s and he was king of Wessex and like you know 1100 years have passed but they still use the same form of words even some of the same music so the crown today is really like living history in all that kind of pomp and pageantry and tradition uh, that's why I'm drawn to it because it's as a historian you feel like you're you're watching the past played out in front of you at these great royal events Plus, and we'll get to this later, it seems to me that, you know, the the monarchy is, the history of the monarchy is replete with characters and mm-hmm. knaves and heroes and great <laughs> leaders and, and um, sinister personalities. So it's not a monolith of this, of this single line and everyone's the same. Fathers can be completely different than then sons and grandsons. And I want to talk to you about that a little bit later, but you mentioned your book title mm-hmm. crown and scepter, a new history of the British monarchy. Why did you title your book a new history? Yeah. What's new about it and what debt does it owe the quote unquote old histories? Mm, uh, well, that's a very good question. So it can justifiably be called new because there hasn't been Uh, certainly published in the UK, A History of the Monarchy, uh, for more than 10 years. Now, in publishing terms, that's a lot of years. Um, (laughs) Apparently, a a book or a subject is new after two years, you know, if if nobody's written about it for two years. So, um, but having said that, of course, um, I did, you know, read. uh, I was inspired by previous histories, David Starkey's um, Mm. uh, History of the Monarchy, but in particular, Alison Weir's Britain's Royal Families. It was her first book. She is the historian I think I admire the most. She's Britain's best-selling female historian. And goodness me, is her knowledge of the royal family uh, encyclopedic. So absolutely, you know, on the shoulders of giants and all that, I definitely, you know, read and absorbed um, these previous histories of the monarchy. But I think what sets mine apart is not just the fact there hasn't been one for more than 10 years. But what I did 
Um, I was determined not just to look at the characters, although they are fascinating, and I definitely bring those characters to life, but to look in parallel at the evolution of monarchy as an institution and how the hell it still survives. You know, we still have a monarchy, even though we wouldn't design it from scratch like that today, because monarchs no longer run the country. It's a symbolic position. So how have they survived? And it's not by chance. There are some very deliberate actions that have caused the survival of the British monarchy. So, yeah, it was looking at the personalities, but also the institution. And I think those two com things combined made it feel certainly to me quite fresh and quite new. So were there any specific goals that you had debunk this myth, raise this person up a little bit, shine a new light on someone who maybe needs to be taken down a peg? <coughs> Richard Lionheart. <coughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, don't worry, Robert. I didn't say that he was one of our greatest uh, monarchs. I mean, he, he was only in the country for six months as I was king. just getting ready to say that. He, he got paid pretty well considering at yeah. 10 years he was only there six months on the job. I know, exactly. Robin Hood has got a lot to answer for, you know, people to <laughs> okay. see him in that legendary kind of <laughs> Of course, he know. probably got punished enough when the surgeon was hacking around his shoulder when the bolt was in oh. it. And, and I can yeah. only imagine the pain he was in. But please yeah. go ahead. Forgive me. So um, I think I didn't necessarily set out with myths to debunk in my mind or, or people to shine a light on. I was determined from the start to be entirely led by the sources. And actually, I did end up debunking some myths. And I hope bringing characters who deserve more of the spotlight uh, into that spotlight. And I'm thinking the likes of Henry I. I think a lot of people in this country would struggle to say anything about Henry the first. Um, he's you know, my, he's my favorite. He's my number ah, one favorite. Is he mm -hmm. really? Wow. Yeah, I, did a, I did a TV program here in the, in the United States here in Indiana, where, where it was a history program and we had to come up with our 10 most underrated people in history. And there was ah. a couple of us and, and he was on my list. I think he's vastly underrated and probably yeah. because, and I just read last few months ago, Charles Spencer's book on the white ship. Oh, if his son great. had lived and yeah. carried on that legacy instead of the uh, the anarchy. Yes. The anarchy. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. forgive me. But yes, as soon as you mentioned Henry the first, you know, I got happy. That is fabulous. I'm so impressed because, uh, yeah, you're you're in the minority. I think there in, in actually just knowing all about him because, he, you know, he's he's been overshadowed, but it's such an important king. And the most successful of William the Conqueror's sons and successors um, and established this much of the royal administration and government. And that might not be particularly sexy, but it was very important for future monarchs. And he also has the uh, dubious honour of uh, fathering more illegitimate children than any other monarch. So 24 illegitimate children. Uh, he was by, busy. He was very busy, as well as all that admin he was doing. So Henry I, I thought, was fascinating. And I think characters, uh, another character who's been maligned, and, um, well, I guess Henry I hasn't been maligned. He's been overlooked. But one who has definitely been maligned is James II. And I was really astonished, actually, to discover how little basis there is for that. So he's the brother of Charles II, um, and... He comes to the throne uh, upon the death of Charles uh, II in 1685. And um, he's a very popular king. And I think he's a very good king and very tolerant 
much more so than any other king of the period. And yet he's been portrayed as this despot and of being the most intolerant king England had ever had. And the only people who presented him as that was Parliament, because they knew he was a Catholic and they wanted a Protestant monarch. Well, James didn't want to impose his Catholic beliefs on anybody. He wanted just freedom of worship for all. But they cast him in this villainous role and ultimately justified his, um, you know, ousting him from the throne on this basis. So I was staggered by what a small minority it took to get rid of James II. Uh, You know, he fled into exile. It was the glorious revolution. It was all PR. There was nothing wrong with James II. I actually ended up feeling really sorry for him. So I quite enjoyed casting new light on his story, I think. Well, as a Catholic, you know, we are uh, rather fond of our Jacobite leader, James II. Yes. with, with With the birth of his son, who became the old pretender Mm -hmm. years later. Where would you rank that in terms of the most impactful Royal births in terms of changing history? Yeah, that is well up there, isn't it? Because it was the, the birth of yeah, the old pretender uh, that really prompted parliament to take action because I think they were just about prepared to sit it out while James II was on the throne and, you know, all being well, one of his daughters would succeed him and they were Protestants. Um, but then when his second wife had a a, a male heir, uh, that was too much because there was a prospect of, you know, Catholics stretching into the future as far as the eye could see. So that was uh, really, really up there uh, with most significant royal births. I get chided by my uh, friends because I don't read fiction. And my argument is, what do you want to read about? Warring, whoring, intrigue, betrayal. I'm like, here's a book on the Tudors. Get back to me. <laughs> and I'm not necessarily saying that I shouldn't read fiction. I find nonfiction more compelling. But is there is there a particular character you've come across in, in your writings, both in this book and others, who just leaves you gasping at his duplicity her duplicity or whatever personal behavior where you're just like, you got to be kidding me. Oh, there is one who reigns supreme over all the others. I'm so pleased you asked me this because I, since writing the book, I have taken every opportunity to lambast Edward VIII. So the King who abdicated his throne for the love of his American divorcee girlfriend, Wallace Simpson, Uh, And isn't it a romantic tale? That's what I thought before I wrote the book. And I thought, God, the king who gives up his throne for love. What a story. Oh, my goodness. Now I think what a lucky escape we had because Edward, there's nothing good to say about him. He was vain and lazy. He would have made a terrible king. And what I was particularly shocked by was his cruelty. So this was illustrated for me in a letter that Edward wrote to his mother, Queen Mary, upon the death of his young brother, John. So John was just 13 years old. He'd never been a very well child. And he died very tragically. And Epilepsy? It was the epilepsy? Um, yeah, that, that was, yeah. God, you know your stuff. Thank you. Yes, it was. Um, and poor Queen Mary was distraught, as you would imagine, at the loss of her son. 
And John's elder brother, Edward, wrote to Mary and basically told her to get over it. And he said that John's death was nothing more than a regrettable nuisance. And so I totally transformed my opinion of this king who I thought was so romantic as he gave up the throne for the love of Wallace Simpson. And I think, thank God he gave up the throne because, you know, it would have plunged the monarchy into a crisis from which I don't think it would have recovered. Whereas, in fact, he abdicated in favour of his much more sensible younger brother, Bertie, who became George VI. He was, of course, our current Queen's father. So things turned out for the best. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We are talking with Dr. Tracy Borman. She is Zooming from England in her kindness. And she is a best-selling author, well-known around the world. We are discussing her new book, Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy. So it wasn't the picture of uh, the Duke of Windsor and his wife greeting Hitler while smiling. That wasn't that didn't do it for you? Oh, yeah, that did it as well. Believe me. I think I think I particularly honed in there on the on the more personal interaction with his mother, because that was like, oh, shocking. But yeah, I mean, recent papers uh, or, or rather papers recently released by the National Archives in London um, show pretty conclusively that Edward had struck a deal with Hitler that if Hitler successfully invaded Britain uh, with a bit of help from Edward, then Hitler would restore Edward to the throne. You know, he's making deals with the Nazis. He's a traitor. And it's just all deeply, deeply shocking. So the movie, The King's Speech, which I'm, you know, obviously I'm going to guess that you have seen perhaps more than once. I'm a big Colin Firth fan. So, yeah. (laughs) For any particular reason you want to tell us? Pride and Prejudice. The scene where he jumps into the lake wearing his white shirt. I'm sorry to lower the tone, but it's it's just, it's yeah, I've been a Colin Firth (laughs) fan ever since then. Uh, that's what we we rec- we we fully accept these sorts of re- movie reviews dr borman no <laughs> worries at all edward the eighth comes off badly in that movie and yeah. you don't have a problem with it you think that's more accurate than not yeah very very accurate and i think as well um the crown which i'm a big fan of he, he doesn't come across particularly well in the crown either um and i think i think yeah that's that's bang on um, so, um, but I guess, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure how much was fiction, uh, in, in those dramatizations before I did the research on Edward. And now I realize, you know, they were probably actually holding back a bit in, in their portrayal because yeah, he's, he's really hard to like. I always thought it was very interesting and, and, re- and incredibly respectful in its own way that the people who wanted to, and you probably know this obviously, but the audience may not that the powers, the people behind the making of the King's speech went to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, with their idea for the movie. And the Queen Mother, who's played by Helen bon- Helena Bonham Carter in the movie, the Queen Mother asked them not to make the movie until after she died. Ah, and they I said, And they said, we'll honor your request. Wow. That's, Which, that's fascinating. I did not know that. Let me read you something. I'm going to read you a short passage uh, from one of the reviews of your book, Crown and Scepter. They're all 100% positive. I'd read several before this podcast, but this particular paragraph stood out to me mostly because of of the of, of my particular interest in this history, and it seems to be uh, widespread. Quote, judging by the enormous popularity of the crown, 
Downton Abbey, the Queen. We Americans are not stalwart Republicans, but raving monarchists and wannabe aristocrats. What else explains the worship of mystique, this love of robes and coronets? Complex psychological theories can and will be called in. But the simplest explanation is that an unreasonable love of fantasy, power, and pageants eases the banality of everyday life. Do you think that is true of Americans? And is it true of Brits? Oh, wow. That is a great quote, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. a great quote. Well, what I was really struck by uh, during the research, because obviously as part of the research, I looked at the, um, you know, George III and uh, the American Revolution and uh, how the irony is that there seems to be more interest, respect for the monarchy in the US than there is here in Britain. And, and also, I have to say, more knowledge about the British monarchy in the States. Um, certainly you are displaying that during this podcast. But I think, you know, even somebody not as well read as you, they seem to just be more aware of British royal history than than most people in Britain. Um, And there's almost a sense that I guess the pressure was off once um, America was no longer under the tyranny of uh, of British royal rule. They could kind of sit back and appreciate it from a distance. And and I definitely get that now. I get that impression now. Uh, There's a wonderful American scholar who I'd like to just mention, called Frank Prokaska. And if you haven't read his books, I'd highly recommend. He writes all about this. He, he's written a book called The Eagle and the Crown, all about the relationship between America and, and the British uh, monarchy over the centuries. And, and he goes into some depth about, you know, the reason behind this fascination uh, it, among Americans. And he said, you know, um, that there's it's hard to imagine uh, you know, it being, you know, a prince kissing a princess and, and you know, or, or sorry, a, a princess kissing a frog and he turns into a handsome prince. You can't imagine a princess kiss, kissing a frog and he turns into a handsome senator. It just is just isn't the same. <laughs> so there's no kind of parallel there. Um, but it's no, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I, I actually really love it because. I, I do, and I hope I'll get back to this. I have, you know, done lecture tours in the states, and I love the Q and As at the end of those uh, my lectures because the questions are so much more in depth. You can have really great discussions and debates. Not to at all downplay UK audiences, but uh, you know, just on average, um, Americans just seem a lot more engaged with with British royal history. A few months ago, we had Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know him. Yeah, I heard of him. Come on. And we talked a lot about his book, The Men Who Lost America. I had read it and he came on. We talked a lot about George III. And George III in that book and others, you know, certainly doesn't come off as tyrannical. Stubborn no. would be the more. Apt. Yeah. Like, how dare you? I mean, I've, I've read more than one book that has said that the American colonists in the mid to late 18th century were the most prosperous people on earth. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think George III was a kind of figurehead and therefore a scapegoat, really. I don't think he was particularly tyrannical. You're absolutely right. He was stubborn. Um, But then once he had finally seen the writing on the wall, you know, that was it. He was devastated by the loss of America because he kind of took a lot of personal responsibility for that, even though it was largely his government. Um, But I'm actually going to see Hamilton tomorrow. Uh, So this kind of, you know, as you know, Global mm-hmm. phenomenon. Uh, I can't even say the word. 
it's too late on a Friday evening. Yeah, global <laughs> smash hit, I will say, Robert, instead of the word that I'm tripping over. Um, and I have seen it once before, and, you know, it's obviously extraordinary, but but I thought that the depiction of George III in that was a bit unfair because he is depicted as that typical kind of pig-headed tyrant. And I think, well, yeah. He's, he's the object of... He's the focus of the single greatest negative ad in the history of the world. And that is the fusillade against him personally in the Declaration of Independence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of new histories, and you mentioned um, Alison Weir earlier, Mm -hmm. and I know Antonio Frazier is also a terrific, prodigious writer. Yeah. I follow a bunch of folks on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And there is a terrific cadre of female historians coming out of the UK and not just Tudor Stewart, but other periods as well. Uh, Susanna Lipscomb, who's come on the podcast, obviously you who were thrilled and honored to talk to Helen Carr, who I'd love to talk to about wow. her book on John of Gaunt, who was the yeah. patron of my master's thesis subject. Um, it is Thomas Serpinum is knighted and becomes part of John of Gaunt's household. Jania um, Ramirez. Oh, great. And then uh, Nicola Tallis, who is who has agreed to come on the podcast. Oh. And, uh, tell me about your, how much you know of each other and, and what perspective yeah. you bring that's new and different. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to say is that I was really kind of inspired um by the the there's a very kind of supportive atmosphere among female historians i guess i expected it when i first kind of entered this world of writing i expected it to be much more competitive and kind of backbiting if i'm honest but actually it's there was a sense that you know we're in the minority i think we're less in the minority now but history has traditionally been dominated by male historians you know, whether it's David Starkey, Simon Sharma, you know, these great kind of towering figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and female historians were, you know, kind of in the background more. So I think that's helped to foster this, you know, genuine sense of, I don't want to use the word sisterhood, but I can't think of a better one. But but we support each other. We're, a lot of us are friends. So Alison Weir is one of my oldest friends. Um, and, you know, I cherish that friendship um, so much. And, and I'm so pleased that Nicola is coming on because Nicola and I are great friends. Um, and uh, yeah, um, we, we talk a lot. We're both lecturers on Alison's tours, actually. So you need to come on one of Alison's tours, Robert. So Alison has her own tour companies, tour company. And uh, I she think was- I read about those on the in BB. I've been subscribing yeah. to BBC history forever. Yeah, yeah. And so they're incredible. She runs one, sometimes two a year. And uh, we've just done one called Wolf Hall, which was going to all the sites connected with Cromwell and Anne Boleyn and, and all the rest of it. Ten day tours, like unique experiences. You get to go places that most other people don't get to go. And you know what I would say? So there is there are usually, you know, just 30 places on the tour. About 28 of the places are taken up by Americans. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so it's we, funny. Yeah. I have a, a I have a parallel story I'll say very quickly. And that is I took my kids to Harry Potter World University oh, yeah. Studios. I don't know if you've been there in Florida. I haven't been to the Florida one. I've been to the one in outside London, but well, that well, I was sitting there one time when they were riding the roller coaster and there were probably 10 people. The place was packed. 
and they were all speaking, you know, with British accents. And I kind of looked at him and smiled. I'm like, you're, you, you've, you've flown to the, to Florida to celebrate <laughs> Harry Potter, like kind of chuckling. And it was funny. One of them, one of the guys looked right at me dead serious and kind of half smiled and goes, you Americans do it right. We don't have anything like this over here. Oh, really? So that maybe that's why the Americans go over there to see castles and go on great ghost tours and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why. Yeah. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is prolific author, best-selling author, Dr. Tracy Borman. What are the origins, to go back a little bit, because I want to start pinging on some particular monarchs, but to set the stage, what are the origins of the British crown? And and how did England sort of come to be in the post-Roman world? Yeah, I mean, the the origins of the British monarchy do go back to Roman times, really, which um, when it was really the the Roman emperors who were the kind of earliest forms of monarchs, I suppose. And and, um, the, the English monarchy was very much inspired by those examples. But for much of the early history of the crown, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't a case of, of a single kingdom over which a single king ruled. Uh, there were lots of rival clans, I think you would call them more, um, and uh, and with you know followers of those leaders. And then eventually it evolved into seven, seven separate kingdoms or heptarchy in Anglo-Saxon times. Um, and there was constant kind of warring between these kingdoms until, you know, finally... Wessex, that um, kingdom we were talking about earlier in relation to the the Queen's youngest son, that Wessex emerged as as dominant and uh, and the King of Wessex was really ultimately then the King of England uh, and managed to unite it. Now, I took 1066 as the jumping off point for my book. Arguably, England was united before 1066, but um, there's still so much debate about who was England's first real king, you know, and, and we can't even agree on that. But everybody can agree that William the Conqueror was, you know, that was that was a turning point uh, in English history. And it's also ties in with my role at Historic War Palaces because he built the Tower of London. So I thought, let's go with 1066. Well, that leads me right to my next question. So, I mean, any any book that I've ever read that has the 10 most important battles in history always includes Hastings, which is, I think, October 14th, 1066. Correct. But one of my favorite quotes of all time is from John Stuart Mill, who said the Battle of Marathon is the most important battle in the history of England. Really? Okay. Maybe maybe Mill was just trying to be smarter than the rest of us. I think he succeeded. He's smarter than me, clearly. <laughs> well, I have the author of a, I have a, the author of a book on um, ancient battles coming on the podcast, so I'm going to ask him about no, that he- when he comes on. Save it for them. Yeah. Um, I can tell you about Hastings, but less sure about that one. <laughs> so what happens if the ramifications, so let me ask it a different way. The ramifications of William of Normandy's victory are several, and you could talk about that a little bit. 
but maybe delve for a minute into the counterfactual if Harold Godwinson, Harold II, had prevailed at Hastings. In other words, how much did England change since William won, and how little would England have changed if Harold had won? Yeah, really interesting. Well, I would say um, if Harold had won, um, then it wouldn't necessarily have been a case of just England staying the same because England was always a, a really alluring target for people from overseas. So if if William the Conqueror hadn't prevailed, the likelihood is that ultimately somebody else would, and um, probably from Scandinavia, probably, you know, a kind of Viking ruler would have uh, managed to prevail. So I don't think either way England would have remained a purely Saxon kingdom for long. Um, and the, 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 if William... Um, you know, well, as he did, uh, won the battle, then that did have a seismic, um, it had seismic ramifications for England because, you know, we're not just talking about a new ruling elite, but, you know, a new language, new customs, new system of government, the feudal system. You know, it is for good reason, I think, uh, that it's called a turning point. And I'm tend to be on the whole quite sceptical about turning points in history because quite often they're not. But what I would say is that it wasn't all to do with just that single battle. We tend to think he won Hastings, end of story, or beginning. (laughs) Ask the people in the north. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it took years of bitter campaigning by William before he'd finally brought England under some sort of control. So Hastings was just one battle, admittedly an important one, but, you know, it definitely wasn't the end of the story for William. I'm going to ask you about movies in a second. But in the movie Braveheart, the actor Patrick McGowan, who uh, was brilliant as Edward I, um, plays a ruthless character. But if you had to choose who is the most ruthless monarch in the history of Britain, England, whom would you choose? Ooh, well... We've just spoken about him, William the Conqueror. Uh, I think he was this brutal warrior king. Edward I was certainly up there, but but William the Conqueror. I think the fact that he was illegitimate, he was just the result of an affair, um, and, and that made him insecure. He had to battle to keep his duchy of Normandy, and that sort of chiseled him into this fearsome, brutal warrior. And to give you an illustration of that, he before he became king of England, he was busy besieging a town in France called Alençon, and the inhabitants of the town were being a bit stubborn and withholding his siege. And when he finally battered down the walls of the town, he ordered his men to round up the citizens of Alençon and strike off the hands and feet of every single one, men, women and children. So I think, you know, his ruthlessness and brutality takes some beating. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this may be... You may answer William the Conqueror to this one, but we'll see. Which monarch do you believe had the most gruesome death? Oh, well, yeah, it's whether the rumors are true, because if the rumors are true, then probably Edward II and, <laughs> and, and you know, the red hot poker mm-hmm. uh, and all of that. But there is little reliable evidence for that, and it's much more likely to have been put about by very kind of moral, um, patronizing chroniclers who were making a point about his possible homosexuality. And it's like, yeah, that would be the death that served him right. So 
whether that really was his death. If it was, I think that's, yeah, pretty brutal. But yeah, I mean, Rich III, hacked to death, hacked into, almost hacked into pieces. Um, yeah, there's probably any number that, um, I, they'll occur to me as soon as we finish talking. But uh, the, I, as a general rule, the earlier the period um, of of the Crown's history, the more brutal a death. And, and, you know, you had to have your wits about you to keep not just your crown, but your life. For those of you who have seen the movie Braveheart, Edward II is the rather effeminate Prince of Wales who's depicted in that movie. Which monarch do you believe is overdue for a reappraisal by historians, leaving Henry I out of it for a second? Ooh, that's a really good question. I mean, the first one to spring to mind, I would say, would be Henry II, actually. Um, so, um, you know, he was king of a vast domain. Thanks to his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, you know, he's, he's, he had an empire, not just a kingdom. And he was a fascinating character. I think, um, again, not particularly well known, um, certainly not in Britain. Um, and, um, and yet... I think he was incredibly successful. He was always one step ahead of his rivals, his his kind of opposers, and including um, his damn kids. Most yeah, ungrateful exactly. lot of kids oh. I've ever read about. Don't you find that? I mean, in the in the medieval period, it's always the case that sons are rebelling against fathers, and oh, that that the the fathers um, are also you know betrayed by their wives because uh, they're secretly supporting the sons. And you think, oh, my goodness me, they have to be most worried about their family, let alone rebels in the country. Is there an English monarch whose reign is beyond repair? Oh, you can't. Oh. No, no historian can, could possibly do the contortions to rehabilitate X. <laughs> King John, I think, probably. Uh but so there King, has been attempts, right, to rehabilitate oh, King John. So I will tell you this story. Uh, I was once in a debate at the Tower of London, a live debate in front of an audience uh, on the greatest monarch in British history. So I went in there confident. I was arguing for Elizabeth I. Easy. Uh, Alison Weir was there. Uh, she was uh, arguing for Victoria, I think, Queen Victoria. And then there was another historian there uh, arguing for King John as a bit of a joke. And he actually won the debate. <laughs> so he kind of, partly because he was just so funny and, you know, he got people behind him. But yeah, he made a, you know, he said if it hadn't been for King John, you know, we'd never have Mag Magna Carta and, you know, fair enough. You know, if John hadn't been quite so terrible, then his barons wouldn't have risen up against him and we would never have this kind of, you know, huge event um, that led to greater liberty amongst the people of, of England. Um, but yeah, King John is hard to argue for. I think he's quite hard to redeem, uh, really. He was... One of those rebel sons we've just been talking about. He rebelled against his father. He rebelled against his brothers. He rebelled against his people, really. He was a traitor to his people. Uh, utterly despicable character. Um, very, very hard to rehabilitate, I would say. So John, King John is an example of the Robin Hood legends getting it right? Uh, very much right. And I think it's no coincidence there hasn't been another King John. Nobody wanted to take that name because it was you know, so <laughs> synonymous with kind of one of the worst monarchs ever. Okay. So uh, I'm not, I don't know that uh, 
Professor Lipscomb, Susanna Lipscomb, who came on the Leaders and Legends podcast. It was a terrific, terrific guest. We focused mainly on the Tudor, maybe the Tudor-Stuart period. Hmm. And I asked her who was the most overrated person in Tudor history. Please ask me that. (laughs) Okay. Her answer was she kind of she kind of scrunched her nose up a little bit. She kind of leaned into the microphone like she was telling a secret, which I thought was funny because she was an amazing, fun guest. And she said, Queen Elizabeth. (gasps) She needs to wash her mouth out. (laughs) That is outrageous. That is absolutely outrageous. Here's your chance to take uh, the Queen's side and then give me your most overrated of Tudor history. I always cite Elizabeth I as our greatest ever monarch. And she was, for me, the greatest before I started writing this book, but I was prepared to change my mind and I didn't. Comparing her to the other 42 kings and queens since, uh, or the other 41, there's 42 including her, since 1066, she still emerges as the greatest. And she was never supposed to be queen. She had this turbulent childhood. And yet she went on to be the longest reigning, most successful by far of Henry VIII's children. And she was a great propagandist. She crafted this brilliant public image. She brought peace and prosperity after one of the most turbulent half centuries in English history. And she gave people a monarch to respect, almost to worship again. She went down in history as Gloriana, the Virgin Queen, and her reign is synonymous with one of the most self-confident and prosperous ages in English history. So that's my Elizabeth Pitch. No way is she overrated. Who is overrated, I would say, is Mary, Queen of Scots. So Elizabeth's arch rival, she's always pitched as this great tragic heroine. She was just a bit stupid and she made rubbish decisions. <laughs> and um, you know, she makes me furious, especially when there's Hollywood films about her and they cast her as this amazing, you know, courageous woman. And Elizabeth is this mean old withered, you know, toothless. Uh, yes, too, yes. Uh, but Mary Queen of Scots, she was spoiled and she was just used to getting her own way. And she just followed her heart, not her head and made some terrible decisions. No wonder the Scottish got rid of her, um, actually. So I would say Mary Queen of Scots by a country mile is the most overrated person. I asked you which monarch had the most gruesome death, mm-hmm. which monarch had the most unjust death oh gosh um well if you see it's easier if we include consorts in that because i would say anne boleyn 100 for that because i think she was not guilty of adultery for a second um and now my mind is gonna stick up for Catherine howard oh yeah no Catherine howard because i think we would see her her story very differently today she she's i think she was an adulteress but how much choice she had in that, I think I would question that now. And I think she was preyed upon by men throughout her life. But I think Anne Boleyn, that was her only crime was not giving Henry a son. Uh, and, and that is so, you know, so blatantly obvious. Um, and she was so courageous and so eloquent in her defence. And she, But she knew. She knew it was pointless. She knew Henry's mind was made up. Uh, but what an impact that had on her daughter, Elizabeth. And I think it's a, it's one of the greatest myths that I came across that Elizabeth thought nothing about her mother. In fact, she spent 
the rest of her life and her long reign trying to rehabilitate her mother. Now, there is a, this is a loaded comment, Robert, I will freely admit, because I've just finished a book about Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, and I'd love to come back and tell you about it when it's out next year. Please do. Uh, it's great. It's called, it's called The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History, so Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I. Um, and, yeah, um, that that's a fascinating relationship. I could definitely fill a whole hour on that alone. <laughs> Did, does it make, does your research, let me ask it a different way. What is your favorite movie about the British monarchy? And does the fact that you are such an accomplished scholar make it more difficult for you to watch movies or TV shows about the British monarchy? Because I can only imagine how much your head explodes when you watch Braveheart. <laughs> well, sort of, but I think there are two camps in among historians, though the purists who cannot abide dramas that veer from the facts. And then I'm in the other camp, which is I just think it's great because all history to me is good. And if it if it's a way in for people, if it inspires people to find out what really happened, and I think in most cases it does, people are intelligent enough to realize this is dramatization, then I think that's great. It does touch me a bit more closely with Elizabeth. I, I am a bit more sensitive uh, because she is my favourite. And I couldn't actually bring myself to watch that Mary Queen of Scots film because I knew I knew the route they were going to be going down. I just couldn't do it. Um, but actually my favourite or one of my favourite uh, historical films is uh, the first Elizabeth with with uh, Kate Blanchett. They, they made a terrible sequel, but the first one I thought was very, very good. It wasn't totally accurate, but I think it got a sense of the period and of Elizabeth's strengths across really, really well. Why was the sequel so bad? The oh, sequel was almost unwatchable. It was it was so terrible. It was like a caricature, wasn't it? It's you know, you have Sir Walter Raleigh single handedly defeating the Armada by jumping in the sea and swimming <laughs> under the ships. You just think, oh, come on. It had none of the subtlety and the drama and the, and the quality of the first one. It was kind of embarrassing. I, I can't watch it. I've, I've watched it once because I was obviously really excited for it to come out. And then I just thought, oh, what have they done? They've ruined it. <laughs> My favorite is, and I watch it every year on December 29th. So tell me which movie I'm talking about. Oh, December 29th? No, I don't know. You've got to tell me. December 29th, 1170. Uh, no, I'm still not there. Oh, God, I'm feeling like this is going to be such <laughs> an obvious. It's all right. Beckett. Oh, okay. Never seen it. Oh, with Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton? Yeah. It's and Sir John Gilgood. It's, it's absolutely terrific. Wow. It's very, very, very good. Okay. You enjoy okay. it. But every year my kids will send me a text and say, is it Beckett night? And I'm like, it's oh, Beckett. I need to see that. I need to see that. Definitely. I was in Canterbury Cathedral the other day and uh, on the, on the, on the spot and it's quite gorgeous. It's yeah. got his name and it's in like a, it's got a sword sword or yeah. something. Yeah, it has. It's, I think it's really beautifully done. It's quite underplayed, but it's, yeah, it's very moving. The Canterbury is a beautiful town. Beautiful. Oh. Not on a Saturday night, I discovered. On a Saturday <laughs> night, it changes completely, and it's full of um, kind of rowdy groups of, of uh, well, we call them stag parties and hen nights, you know, people who are getting married and they go for one last great wild night out. It was, it was like, I could not believe it. And then Sunday morning, it was back to this beautiful, serene, quiet town. <laughs> <laughs> 
We have a few more minutes with Dr. Tracy Borman on the Leaders and Legends podcast. She's being very kind. It's seven, it's 8.30 your time, 3.30 here. We're also doing this podcast on July 1st, which is the 106th anniversary of the first day of the Battle of the Somme, in which 60,000 British casualties were incurred in the First World War. Unfathomable. And I guess we should say, Happy birthday to Olivia de Havilland, who was actually born on July 1st, 1916. Speaking of Robin say, Hood. Yeah, we should say as well, happy birthday to my mom, because it's her birthday today. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> would you, Dr. Borman, would you have voted to execute Charles I? I definitely would not. I would have been a royalist. I'd have been a cavalier. I would not have been amongst the uh, roundheads. I think... What really struck me was um, how close it came to resolution. And I was I did find myself deeply frustrated with Charles I, because although I would have been on the side of the monarchy, he was so damn stubborn. And (laughs) Parliament actually wanted to strike a deal with him and really tried hard. But he, he was just so determined to uphold what he saw as his divine right. And yeah, it was kind of head in the hands moments a lot of the time when I was researching this. I was like, oh, so yeah, I'd have wanted him to survive, but perhaps to then abdicate in favor of his son. Solve the mystery once and for all. Who killed the princes in the tower? Oh, God, wouldn't that be gold dust if I could claim? Maybe I should claim erroneously that my book solves that mystery. Let's say it. (laughs) Uh, Well, we can't disprove it, so you might as well say it. Well, I guess I started out having not researched this before the book, thinking Richard III was the prime suspect, the most likely candidate. I say this with hesitation because the Richard III Society is very powerful. Um, And I still had that belief having researched it. I think... He had the means and he had the greatest motive. But the truth is we probably will never know for certain. What I would like to know is whether those two skeletons that were discovered in 1674 really are the princes. And we won't know that in the current queen's reign because she will not give her permission for them to be exhumed and examined because she thinks they should rest in peace. However, apparently Prince Charles will give his permission. So we, you know, that that leads me to my next question. What was your reaction when the bones of Richard III were found in the car park? Wasn't that extraordinary? And like they got the exact spot first time. And there he was in that moment when they saw the curvature of the spine and you think, hang on, this wasn't just Shakespeare kind of creating this caricature. And this wasn't just the Tudors saying he was a crook, but he actually had got you know, a curvature of the spine. And then you think, what else did they get right about him? But no, (laughs) that's just one. Uh, But that's probably the single biggest archaeological find as it relates to the British monarchy in the last century. Am I, you, I don't want to overstate it. No, totally. You can't overstate it. It was huge. And, and I I think um, it was, it was remarkable. And I think, you know, the, the Richard III Society were fully behind that. And I think they deserve credit for kind of campaigning for that uh, archaeological dig because how extraordinary that was. Um, and I, but I think then that did renew calls for those two skeletons to be examined as well. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I hope we'll see that because I think that might once and for all lay to rest the conspiracy theories that those boys got away, um, which would right. be lovely, but... Um, I think it will tell us once and for all whether they are the princes. 
if you could solve another mystery as it relates to the British monarchy, which one would you solve? What, what would you want to know the absolute truth about mystery X? Oh, gosh. Well, it's quite a small point of detail, but it was an important one. Um, I would say the most controversial wedding night in history. Uh, did Catherine of Aragon uh, have sex with Prince Arthur? Was their marriage consummated? Uh, because on that question rested the whole Reformation and uh, the other five marriages, you know. Uh, and so <laughs> I personally have always rather veered towards believing Catherine. I think she was, well, she certainly was a God-fearing woman. I don't think she would have easily lied about that. And there are testimonies to say how weak, how physically weak Arthur was. He was, you know, he was morbidly ill it, by the time uh, he married Catherine. So I think it's very possible he was just unable to consummate the marriage. But yeah, that that would be, that's such a tantalizing one. Uh, I would love to know the truth. Arthur is the the first son. This leads me right into the next question. You are, you're really good, Dr. Borman. You are leading it's like it's me. scripted. <laughs> yes. Uh, Arthur is the first son of Henry VII and Queen Elizabeth of York, who died prematurely. So my next question, what is the most impactful premature death in the history of the British monarchy? Oh, you see, there are so many to choose from, actually. There are so many. Um, okay, I'm just Henry? Gonna, well, I'm going to say I'm going to say the one that sprang immediately to mind was um, Henry V. Because I think he had the makings of our greatest ever monarch. I think he might have even eclipsed Elizabeth for me if he'd lived longer. He was an amazing ruler and a great in, inspiring leader as well. Um, but he died. He contracted uh, dysentery while he was campaigning in France. He died before his time and leaving the throne to his baby son, Henry. And I can tell you, it never turns out well when a child inherits the throne. It, you know, it plunges the country into uncertainty. And in this case, it plunged the country ultimately into civil war, the Wars of the Roses. Um, and the monarchy, it was one of the most turbulent centuries, the 15th century in its history. And the crown changed hands something like six times in 30 years. And it introduced a really destabilizing element to the monarchy because until then, it, the hereditary succession had been pretty well established. But now it's almost like whoever's got the biggest army can take the crown. And, and that's quite a dangerous position for the monarchy to be in. So, yeah, I would say Henry V. May I throw a few more at you? Yes. Edward the Black Prince dies in 1376. His father, yeah. Edward III, dies in 1377. Black Prince's son becomes Richard II, who's eventually kicked off the throne by, by who someone who becomes Henry IV. Then there is a prince, I think it's Prince Henry, who's yes. the first son of James I. So, you know, you have these sons dying, yeah. and then the person who comes after them, you know, just can't quite yeah. you know, get it together. Yeah. Um, Arthur being another one. Yeah. Another one, obviously, is a Prince. I think it's Prince Edward, the son of Henry the First, who's killed at the White Ship. Yeah. Yeah, I know. There's there's all sorts. There's all sorts, uh, and and it's there are so many what ifs, uh, and yeah. Do you have a uh, favorite what if? Well, I probably it has to be, or a favorite what if, or a favorite what if around death, kind of thing. 
Because I think choose. I, I would say um, I'd like to make it bring it right back to the present day, because um, I think one of the Queen's greatest legacies, uh, Elizabeth II's, is that she has finally introduced equality in the royal succession so that she introduced this act whereby now it's the firstborn child of a monarch who will inherit, whether that child is male or female. And what I would like to know, the lost queens, the, the firstborn children who were female throughout the centuries, what sort of queens would they have made if this act had been in place much, much earlier? And I'm thinking of the likes of Elizabeth of York, you know, wife of Henry VII, um, and uh, Victoria, the, the daughter, the firstborn child of Queen Victoria, uh, who I think would have done a better job of it than her her naughty brother Bertie. Um, so Edward, the, Edward the caresser. Yes, exactly, Edward the caresser. I mean, I, I'm fond of him, but yeah, perhaps not our greatest monarch. So yeah, I would I would like to sort of ponder the kind of what if that is our, our lost queens, I think. Do you have a favorite queen consort? Oh, yes, I do. I do. And it is Anne of Cleves. Uh, I, she is by far my favorite of the six wives and I think my favorite royal consort. Shortest, uh, one of the shortest um, kind of reigning consorts, if you mm -hmm. like, um, uh, in history. But what a success story she was. And I, I, I think she's been so maligned as just the ugly wife who Henry can <laughs> uh, quite, quite apart from the fact Henry was no oil painting at that, that stage but um, she was the most successful she agreed to the annulment very pragmatically and was rewarded with five palaces £20,000 a year she lived out her life in luxury and pleasure nobody had a bad word to say about her and she survived everybody she survived the other five wives she survived Henry uh, and I just think she's an absolute heroine. She's a legend. What about Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III? She seems to be a, I just read an article about her in the British History Magazine. She seems oh, like yeah. a wonderful lady. Yeah, no, absolutely. And she had a lot to put up with in the later years of their marriage. But uh, <laughs> yeah, mother of 15 children. I mean, that alone is yeah deserves some kind of medal. Uh, yeah, they had a very affectionate marriage. And I think this is when the, the monarchy emerged as sort of moral figureheads for the nation, you know, the, the, the sort of ideal family that people should aspire to be. Uh, but it all fell apart a bit with their eldest son and successor, George IV, who was slightly less moral uh, than his parents. <laughs> and carried on the Hanoverian tradition of fathers hating their firstborn yes. sons. Yes. Another premature death, Frederick the yeah. father yeah, of yeah, the Frederick. son of George II and father of George III. How much different would that have been if he had? Yes. Been? Yeah. Again, but, I'm kind of thinking that's that was no bad thing. But uh, yeah, be, that's another one. There are so many. Maybe actually, I'm thinking you might have come across a good book idea here. You know, the the, the ones who died before their time and the great what ifs. May I help you write it? That means I have yeah. to move to England, which is my lifetime goal. Is to oh, there you go. It's it's all falling into place. <laughs> If you could go back in time and box the ears of any British monarch, whom would you choose? Ooh, apart from Edward VIII. Um, oh, gosh. Who would I choose? If I was feeling brave enough, it would be Henry VIII, I think, because I think he's got an awful lot to answer for as a husband and uh, and as 
somebody who, with almost pathological coldness, dispatched long-serving faithful servants, such as my own personal favourite, Thomas Cromwell. Um, and he was increasingly fickle and unpredictable. Uh, and yeah, uh, he's our most famous king, I think, by far. Uh, but uh, I don't think we should necessarily celebrate him uh, in the way that we perhaps have. I would like to go back and, yeah, put him in his place a bit. In your book, Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy, you include Lady Jane Grey. Yes, I do. Why? Well, she, she was. Reigned, she was, what, a month? Is it July yeah, wow. of 53? I think, is that what it is? Yeah, nine days queen. She was officially queen for nine days, but she was queen. She wasn't crowned. But actually, if we use that as a qualification, then there are others who should be missing from the list. But she's always called Lady Jane Grey, and there is some reasonable criticism of that um, because that was really a Tudor thing because they couldn't call her Queen Jane because in the Tudor eyes, she wasn't the true queen. And so they had to just kind of, you know, downgrade her to Lady Jane Grey. But she is there. I think, it, you know, no matter how short the reign, they've still got to have their little place. It's a short chapter, I will admit, on Lady Jane Grey. <laughs> it's like three pages. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think it's a page and a half. <laughs> Let's skip forward before we get to the final questions. Uh, we've talked a lot about the monarchy and it's kind of more powerful formative years but one of the best books i've ever read is called is by edmund taylor it's called the fall of the dynasties and it's a book about how the austrian russian and german monarchies fell as a result of world war one but how did the english monarchy survive beyond just the fact that they were on the winning side. And what do you think of George V's decision to deny a sanctuary to his cousin, Nicholas II, and his yeah. family? Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I mean, that that taking that last point, I think that's something that George V regretted bitterly. Um, and there is a theory that he had actually sanctioned a secret mission um, to rescue uh, Nicholas and his family, and that that mission failed. Well, it obviously failed, uh, but that you know he did try unofficially uh, to rescue them. Uh, I like to believe that's true. Certainly, he was devastated by by his cousin's death. How the British monarchy survived, you know, a date that is by no means famous in British history is 1689, but I would say it is the most important date in the entire history of the monarchy. That is when William and Mary were forced mm. to agree to the Bill of Rights. Now, this was basically a deal that Parliament struck that said the monarchy could still exist, but that they signed away all their political power to Parliament. Um, and so this was the moment when kings and queens no longer ruled they reigned. It was the beginning of constitutional monarchy. And other monarchies in Europe laughed at this, particularly like Louis XIV and the absolute monarchies. They thought it was humiliating. You know, the British monarchy has signed away all their power. But that's what saved the British monarchy, that they did make this major compromise. Look what happened in the following century. You know, monarchies are falling left, right and centre, particularly in France. But here in England, in Britain, it was saved by the fact that, yeah, they'd been pragmatic. They'd seen the writing on the wall. 
it was no longer a case of of the king reigning supreme and you know governing every aspect of people's lives they had to compromise and they had to adapt and take on different roles such as charitable roles and uh you know as patrons of arts and sciences and that kind of thing and i think that's why we still have a monarchy today no discussion of the British monarchy is complete. This is my last question before we get to the five questions uh, without some mention of Queen Victoria. Do you count yourself a fan? No, I don't, actually. I don't. I think she's second to Mary, Queen of Scots in terms of overrated. Uh, she retired for much of her reign. I mean, she, she was so grief stricken when Albert died, and that was a great tragedy for her when Albert died. But you know, compare her to Elizabeth II, who took four days off after Philip's death. Uh, Victoria took more than a decade off. Uh, and I think, um, you know, that that really plunged the monarchy into crisis. There was a growing Republican movement. And um, eventually her ministers had to really desperately persuade her to come back and resume her public royal duties. But that was a very damaging episode. So I think her name is synonymous with greatness. It was the age of empire and industry and, you know, Britain led the world. But Victoria herself can't claim much credit for that, I don't think. Do you think part of her reputation is the fact that she had so many children who married so many monarchs who then had gave birth to so many monarchs? And obviously I'm thinking particularly of her eldest child, Victoria, who is the mother of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a good reason that Victoria was called the grandmother of Europe because she had nine children, 42 grandchildren, 87 great-grandchildren, married most of those into the royal families of Europe. So there was this kind of complex web of royalty across Europe, all of which had Victoria at its centre. Uh, so, yeah, that was quite a clever move, I think, by Victoria. And when and when the Iron Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, met her, he walked out and said, what a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. She was described by her father as a pocket Hercules. So I think that's quite accurate. <laughs> we have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask our guests the same five questions. Dr. Tracy Borman, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? Well, apart from doing a paper round, my first proper job was dressing up as a Victorian jailer and showing people around Lincoln Castle Prison. I don't think we're going to get that one duplicated here on the podcast. <laughs> Number two, what was your first concert? Guns N' Roses. Uh, that I was, was my last concert. Oh, that was my first concert. Did you love all. it? I loved it. I'm a bit of a, you know, a rock fan, uh, it, you know, and I certainly was in my youth. And yeah, sweet child of mine, I was rocking along to with the rest of them. <laughs> Axel Rose and uh, Izzy Stradlin were both born in Indiana. Oh, great. Just up the road. Well, there you go. I promise I didn't choose that on purpose. That genuinely <laughs> was my first concert. I took my son last uh, fall when they were in Indianapolis uh, for their latest tour, and it was spectacular. Amazing. Oh, um, and I actually had lunch next to Slash one day at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Oh, fabulous. Couldn't have been a nicer oh, fellow. Oh, my goodness. How amazing. It's not getting married at the Tower of London, but it's as close as I get. <laughs> If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Well, it's got to be a history one. Um, and it's Stephen Alford's The Watchers. It's not a very well-known book, but it's 
absolutely incredible. So The Watchers really is about Elizabethan espionage. And what Stephen gets across so strongly is how close Elizabeth I came to being assassinated on numerous occasions. And uh, it's it brings across the sophistication of the spy networks in 16th century England. It's absolutely stunning. Number four, this is a tough one, sorry. Mm. Or maybe it's not. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens in person, which event would you choose? Yeah, no, this is so this is so hard because I would choose about a thousand. Uh, but the one I plumped for, I think, would be the arrest of Anne Boleyn on the 2nd of May, 1536, where it comes out of nowhere for her. She's you know, she's shocked. She doesn't know what's, what's happening. And just being in that boat with her mm. and with her nemesis Cromwell and the other members of Henry's Privy Council as she's being rowed from Greenwich Palace to the Tower of London, it would have been uncomfortable watching, but I would love to have been a fly on the wall. I wish we'd have had more time to talk about the Tower of London, maybe next time. But yeah, yeah. We need to do at least three other podcasts, I think. <laughs> if you I couldn't get that lucky. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? It's gotta be the Queen. It's got to be the Queen. I have got so many questions to ask the Queen. And I think there's a great irony that um, in this age of mass communication, we know less about Elizabeth II than we do about Elizabeth I. There are fewer of her recorded sayings, thoughts, opinions. She's been you know, intensely private. She abides by the Constitution. She doesn't offer opinions uh, where they are not part of her duties. I would love to just spend two hours asking her all sorts of questions about her reign and, and yeah, where it's really at. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Dr. Tracy Borman. She is a world-famous author and historian. Her latest book is called Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy, which I have right here in my hand and have read most of it, have not read all of it, I've read most of it, and it's absolutely terrific. It's It's gotten rave reviews, and you should pick it up, and we'll put a link and the podcast posting so that you can order it. Tracy, thank you so much for your time. It's obviously a treat to get a chance to talk with you. It's been such a pleasure. And it's just sparked so many potential subjects that we need to chat about in future, I think. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll take you up on that tour offer for uh, Hampton Palace. Please do. You've got you've to have it number one on your list when you visit. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.